If you could open up your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 17 to 32. As you turn in there, happy Mother's Day. We're going to still be in Acts, just like on Father's Day, we will still be in Acts. Now, Arbor Day, though, is going to be lit, so look forward to that sermon. Arbor Day, that's right. Look forward, 2023. So, for those that, that know, uh, I'm, I'm Jimmy Fowler, executive pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, my wife and I, Michelle, have been coming here. Uh, we moved back to the States uh, in October 2012. So it's been about almost 10 years that we've been able to call Redeemer our home. And in those 10 years, if you've uh, kind of been around, you've, and especially if you follow Pastor Joe on social media, you're going to see he kind of likes to scare me. I'm not a guy that likes to be scared. I don't enjoy it. I don't, anyone, I don't want anyone sneaking up on me. It's just, it really bothers me. And what Pastor Joe would do is, if we're you know, having a meeting and we're closing up, I'll probably go to the washroom or something. I come out and all the lights are off. And then he videos like himself like scaring me. And there's a compilation video out there somewhere. It freaks me out every time. I'm paralyzed with fear. I don't like moving. I don't like being startled. Just the notion of being startled. I hate balloons. I don't like the idea of balloons. I think they're ridiculous. And I don't want a balloon around me because at some point it's going to pop and it's just, ah, I'm just going to have like a start. It's just, we're driving down the road one day and all of a sudden I could see in the rearview mirror, my daughter Ariana pulled out a balloon. And I'm like, what is this balloon doing in the car? This is dangerous. If it pops, I could swerve. I'll kill us all. How dare you? I opened up the window, threw the balloon out. I was like, get this balloon out of here. Not today. Not today, not ever. No balloon, ever. But sometimes we kind of live in this, this fear. And, and, you know, sometimes I'll hear people say, hey, just kind of, you just got to man up and work through that. It's almost like, remember that Bob Newhart skit? The, the, the counselor, the psychiatrist skit? If you don't know, so Bob Newhart is, is a psychiatrist and someone's coming in and, and he goes, listen, here's how we do things. It's a little bit different here. Uh, it's $5 for the first five minutes. After that, it's free. We're not going to need all five minutes, trust me. And so, you know, asking the individual, what's going on? What's your phobia? And she's like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm claustrophobic and I'm afraid of being buried alive. He's like, have you ever been buried alive? And she's like, no. He goes, so you're just afraid and anxious of being buried alive. And, you know, she's like, yes. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you two words and this is going to help you here. Stop it. <laughs> just stop it. And it goes through and as she's kind of giving other ailments and everything, all he could tell her is stop it. And oftentimes we, we kind of live our lives like that when we're dealing with our fears and our anxieties. We kind of tell each other, just stop it, get over it, live with it, move on from it. But any of us that have dealt with anxiety and fear know that it's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? It's a lot more complicated than to just say, stop it. Don't do that thing that you're doing. There's some sort, sometimes there's, there's baggage, there's, there's trauma, there's, there's addictions, there's, there's other aspects that come into it. And it's not as easy just to say, well, I'll just turn the page today. In our passage, in Acts 5, we see this, this fear that's being, that's being, that shows itself among the religious leaders. And we see this freedom that, that God's people have, right? It's, it's actually quite ironic as, as we go through it. It's, it's the disciples that are imprisoned. So they're, 
they're imprisoned, but they live in freedom. And it's those that are physically free that are bound by their fear. It's just a, it's such a beautiful, beautiful passage. And what I would like for us to see this morning is this, that the fear of God frees us from slavery to fear. The fear of God is what frees us from the slavery to fear. So if you have your Bibles, Acts 5, verses 17 to 32, and it reads this way. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, it's an honor to, to be able to proclaim your word and to share your word with your people. And Lord, I pray that uh, during this time that your spirit would be here with us, that you would be challenging us, convicting us, encouraging us, molding us. Lord, I pray that, that our hearts and our minds would be changed. I know that, that you've done a work in me this, this past week as, we were, as I was looking at this passage, just a, a beautiful reminders and convictions of sin and doubt, of fear that, that I needed to deal with. I ask, Lord, that you would do that for all of us and do it more, Father. We want to be conformed into your image and likeness. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the fear of God frees us from slavery to fear. We're going to look at this in, in three parts. We're going to be looking at the captivity of fear. Secondly, the freedom of faith. And third, the power of obedience. So first, as we look at this captivity of fear, 
At the beginning here, we see that we have the, the Sadducees, right? We have these religious leaders. And so you might be asking, what's the difference with the Sadducees? You've got the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes. You've got, there's a lot of scenes out there. What's, what's the difference between them? And actually, Paul kind of uh, turns this on its head later on in Acts 23.8. And so one of the ways is, is uh, he writes, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So there, Paul's kind of using what the Sadducees believe against them. So the Sadducees are a group of people. They're, they're like the religious elite. They're the religious teachers. They're, they're in control. But they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in these things. And so uh, that's kind of one of the way I remember in Bible school, they would tell us like, hey, here's how you know which one, you know, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees believe in the resurrection. See, the Sadducees don't. That's, they don't believe in the resurrection and that's why they are sad, you see. <laughs> now you'll remember it. I hated it then, but I still come back to it every single time. So they deny the resurrection. They deny angels. And yet then they're filled with jealousy. Why are they filled with this jealousy against the disciples? Well, jumping down to verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. You see, they understood that the disciples, the, the apostles, the people of God had gained the respect of the people around them, of the community. See, the community was watching them. The community was seeing them. The community was wondering what's different about these disciples. And because of that, that how they lived their lives, how they treated one another, how they took care and they served each other, the community couldn't understand, why are you coming against them? Why are you, why are you trying to oppress them? What is it so bad that they're doing? They're, they're taking in. They're taking in people. They're, they're loving on people. They're united as one. They're taking care of each other's needs. What's so bad about this? What do you have against them? But see, for the Sadducees, for the religious elite, that was supposed to be their place. They, were, they demanded that others were supposed to respect them. Look at my position of authority. I'm a religious leader. I'm in charge here. The respect that you're giving them is owed to me. Why are you not giving that to me? So they were jealous because they had the respect of the people, but also because they were being used by God in a powerful way. We were hitting on this last week. Acts 5, 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. See again. And more than ever, Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So they couldn't deny, look, at, there, there's something going on here. There is something going on in and among the disciples, among the apostles. A great work of God is happening. And so they were jealous. They were jealous because they wanted this power. They wanted this authority. They demanded it. And the, the disciples were 
putting into question whether or not they should be in power and whether or not they did have any authority under God. I mean, look, here they are. They told the disciples, they told Peter and John just a chapter or so ago, don't go teach this. Don't go proclaim this. Stop it. Stop it. But the disciples couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't help themselves. And we'll get into more reasons why later on. But just their act of proclaiming the gospel against the will of the Sadducees, against the will of the religious leaders, against the instructions of the religious leaders, was a flippant, was a sign of defiance in the community. I mean, think of it. If you ever watched The Hunger Games, that whole whistle, do, 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 do. I don't know how to do it. I can't do it. The three finger thing, the mocking jay, little. It was a sign of defiance and rebellion against those in authority. And here they were, standing firm on what they were called to do. We have others in this passage that have this fear of punishment. I mean, look at the temple officers in verse 24. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed by them, wondering what this would come to. You know, the prisoners escaped under their watch. It's a secure prison. It's locked. There were guards. How is it that these guys were able to get away under our watch? I mean, is there this larger conspiracy at hand? Is, is this kind of going out more and more? Like, how much danger are we in? I mean, think about uh, some of the other instances where the prisoners uh, were released. When the power of God worked and the prisoners were released and the guards see it and they think to themselves, oh my, they're gone. And they look to kill themselves because they know the punishment of what would happen. And they say, it's better for me to do it by my own hand. And God intervenes. They live under this fear of the people. Again, verse 26, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They understood the respect that the people held the disciples with. The community was watching, and they saw that they lived differently. And you would think, well, hold on, they're in a position of authority. They can do whatever they want, can't they? Can't they just do whatever they want? Well, think of in that movie Gladiator, right, where there's this act of defiance, and the, the emperor wants to kill, wants to take care of them, wants to put them away, but he can't because the people love the gladiator. Because he understands to be able to have the support of the people, I have to then please the people. I got, if I go against the will of the people, they will overtake me. They will kick me out. They will, I will then be in trouble and lose my position. I mean, it was the same thing with John the Baptist. It talks about they were afraid to go after him because of the people. And then we have this fear of guilt. You know, it talks about this council, this Sanhedrin. This is uh, the ruling council for Israel. Even though they're, they're under uh, an occupation, they still are able to kind of live and navigate and, and, and live amongst themselves in, uh, with certain limitations. And so this ruling council was there, the Sanhedrin. And look, look at verse 27, or to, sorry, 28. I found this really telling. They were afraid to say Jesus' name. They were afraid to acknowledge him. He says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
They won't even say the name of Jesus. Why? You know when you have wronged someone. You know when, when you have hurt someone. You can't even face that individual. You have that shame. And here they understand they are acknowledging their sin. Or they don't even want to face that acknowledgement, actually. I mean, Peter really hits it. The God of our fathers, in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. I mean, they understood that Jesus was innocent. Pontius Pilate understood that, remember? He sat there, he wiped his hands of this. He said, I will not have this man's blood upon my hands, this innocent man's blood upon me. You're pushing for this. You're demanding it. You want this. You're accountable for this. And so Peter says, whom you hung on a tree. In a much more real sense, all of us are guilty of this sin. All of us, because of our sin, hung, Jesus was hung on the cross. You, it is because of you and I. He hung on a tree. Even though it was with, in accordance to scripture, they have to acknowledge their sin, that they sent an innocent man to his death. Why? Because were, he was challenging their authority. He was challenging their power. He was challenging them that it's not about the institutional religion, but it's about this relationship with the living God. That he himself has come, that he has condescended, he has taken on flesh, he has dwelt among us, and he himself will carry the punishment for our sins. That he is that, that, that goat in the wilderness being sent off. He is the scapegoat. So they don't want to acknowledge their sin, they don't want to acknowledge his innocence. But see, there's, there's this, a third, another fear, uh, a fifth fear, and this is the fear of God in the life of a believer. When you hear that word, when we say fear of God, we're not talking about how Pastor Joe, I was afraid of Pastor Joe in the hallway. But we're talking about this awe, this respect. We're talking about like, so I know for, for some individuals, when we talk about a, a father or a, a mother's discipline, like disciplining their children, it, it, there's a negative connotation to it. I, I, I believe, I understand, I want to acknowledge that and, and say I, I, I know that. It's wrong, it's unbiblical, it's unscriptural. It's horrific. But I was fortunate that, I, that my father uh, did discipline, did discipline us. And I remember distinctly thinking to myself, yeah, I deserve that one. I kind of got away with it. There was probably one or two more whacks that should have came my way. But I remember thinking like, I, I, no, I deserve this. I, I did what was wrong. I'm being punished for what I did and what I did was wrong, right? Like it just, it, it clicked for me. But I had this fear of my father and it wasn't this fear like I was afraid and shunned and I, I, I didn't want to look him in the eye sort of a thing and I couldn't like face him out of fear that he just might retaliate and go off on me or nothing like that. It was this fear of, I love you, I respect you, I'm in awe of you, I don't want to disappoint you. I want to follow your ways and I know when I'm out of line, you're going to take care of me and res help restore me to what is proper and what is right. This fear of knowing that, that he's, uh, my father was in charge and he is, uh, that uh, his ways are good. They are right. They're what I'm called to live. And so when we talk about as believers, we're talking about this, this fear of God 
that we have this awe, this respect, this desire to please. Non-believers also have a fear of God, but that fear of God, or they should have a fear of God because of judgment awaiting them. See, we don't have that same fear. Our, our fear is not of judgment because Jesus has paid that price. Our fear is a, a response of thankfulness and, and awe and of respect over what our God has done in us and through us. And because of that, we have this freedom of our faith. We can walk in freedom. I mean, look at the disciples here. See, they had the proper fear of God in their lives. And they knew, knew who they were to follow. And because of that, they were not intimidated. Look at verses 20 to 21. Angel says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, the, these words of eternal life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They took the first opportunity that they had. There was no wasted movement, no wasted time. They took it. Even though you would think that they would maybe take a step back and say, well, we saw what happened last time. We know that they're coming, they're gunning for us. Maybe we should lie low and wait a bit. Let's just go and let the heat kind of cool down and then we head back out there. No, at daybreak, they're there proclaiming the gospel. So why is it that we procrastinate when it comes to witnessing? We try to tell ourselves, well, listen, I'm just going to wait for the right moment. And yet somehow, conveniently, the, the right moment never seems to turn up, does it? You know, some of us are ham-fisted when it comes to presenting the gospel. We're kind of jumbling around, we're nervous, we, we kind of stutter, and, and we're unsure of how to go about it. But I would take a ham-fisted gospel presentation than the close-fisted believer that refuses to share the words of eternal life with a lost world. Your ham-fisted presentation of the gospel is, has eternal implications eternal implications. At daybreak, they were there, ready again to proclaim the words of life. You see, the disciples were not surprised. They were not surprised that they were having oppression coming at them. They were not surprised that, that the leaders didn't like what they had to say. I mean, Jesus warned them. He told them in Matthew 10, 19 to 20, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You see, that's why they willingly went with the temple officers. Because they knew this is what the Lord has for me. He told me this would happen. He said we would be turned over. And he said in the midst of that, I will be with you. You will not be alone. I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you every step of the way. So much so that I will give you the words. That the Holy Spirit will be prompting you, leading you, guiding you. And here later we see Peter, this uneducated fisherman, having some of the most outstanding and robust arguments against the learned religious leaders of the time. The Holy Spirit at work in our lives and in their lives. They were not surprised. They boldly trusted in Jesus' promise that the Spirit would be among them and with them and through them. But this boldness that we see in the disciples, it's a different kind of boldness that we lay claim to today. Oftentimes I, oftentimes I see online specifically, but even at, from time to time in person, 
What we call boldness is just, just being confrontational. Or what we call boldness is really just being a jerk. Like, and we call it boldness. I'm just being direct for Jesus, you know? But really, do you see this boldness that's kind of wrapped in humility with these disciples, these apostles? They had this humility because they were witnesses. They knew their place. They knew it wasn't about them. They knew they weren't proclaiming their glory, but the glory of God. They knew that they had witnessed what God had done in them and what God has done for them. And they knew that it's without, that without God, without Jesus, without salvation, without him on the cross, him being raised from, from uh, the grave, that they would have no salvation, that they could not save themselves. That it's only by purely the work of God. They knew who to rely on. They, they had this humility because they knew it was the Holy Spirit that was working in them. That the Holy Spirit was leading them and guiding them and enabling them to do this work. So they knew it wasn't about them. They knew that, so for me, it's like the, one of the most eye-opening moments of ministry for me was, was as I was reading scripture and, and, and witnessing, thinking to myself that this was a lot of freedom, actually, that I didn't have to articulate the gospel perfectly. I don't have to articulate it perfectly. I don't have to have the greatest argument known to man to convince someone to believe in Jesus because that's not my work. That's the Holy Spirit at work in their hearts and in their lives. You know how, free, that, how much freeing that was? There was this sense for me early on that I would, as I'm witnessing and people are not coming to Christ, I'm like, man, I failed them. I failed them. If only I was smarter. If only I knew the Bible more. If only I was more articulate. If only I was more, uh, uh, had a bit more of a personality or was more charismatic or whatever else I needed to be, that would convince them. That would save them because I don't want them to face the judgment that they're facing. And that day of understanding, wait a second, it is the Holy Spirit's work in their heart and their life. It is only the Holy Spirit that can do this. And it's only because of the Holy Spirit that I can proclaim this gospel. It was completely freeing. My responsibility is to proclaim. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict and regenerate. So not only were they witnesses and they were Holy Spirit-powered, they, were, they knew that they were witnessing. They knew that they were ambassadors and that the community was watching. How they conducted themselves, how they went about things, how they presented themselves actually mattered. You see, when we say bo like boldness and humility, Peter was bold, and we're going to see more and more of that. Peter was bold in his gospel proclamation. And that boldness was, was very clear for him out of this love of, I must be truthful to you and I want you to see. I want you to acknowledge this. I want the Holy Spirit to be at work in you. So why do we struggle with boldness today? I think oftentimes it's, for me, sometimes it's because there's just bad examples of said boldness. I don't want to be viewed as that. I don't want to be over the top and, and be viewed as, as one of those sort of believers. I think for others, there is a fear of man. They're still afraid of what might happen. Maybe the relationship's going to change. Maybe the friendship will be gone. Maybe they'll look at me and think of me as, as a weird Christian. Oh, you really believe that Jesus is the only way? You really believe in what Jesus, what Jesus uh, uh, or what the Bible talks about marriage? You really believe that this is how one is supposed to live? 
or believe. I think for others, there's ignorance just from lack of study, lack of spending time in their words. So it's hard to be bold. It is hard to be bold and it's hard to, to present something that you yourself are not really knowing what it is. You've experienced it. So that, that, there's, there's knowledge there. And actually, that's enough oftentimes of when we're sharing and witnessing is sharing how God has worked in us personally, right? But yeah, for others, it's, it's important to have a time of study and reflection on the gospel. But I think part of it too is there's a lot of lacking that goes on. Isn't that a saying, one's lacking? Some people have this, they lack faith in the gospel itself. They don't truly believe in what the gospel says and promises. Because if we truly believe in what the gospel says and promise, knowing that that gospel is, we deserve God's just wrath. We deserve that punishment. But it's only by faith in Jesus Christ that we can be redeemed and saved. Why? We would be sharing that and shouting it from the rooftops. It should be captivating each and every single one of us. Some of us lack trust in the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, that the Holy Spirit will provide a response, that the Holy Spirit will lead us. For some others, it's, it's a lack of love. It's a lack of love for non-believers. Because if we know what it is that they're facing, what we know, especially even with our family and our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors, and we know what is going on and what, what awaits them, the most loving thing we could do is to grab them by the shoulders and say, listen, I need you to hear about this. I need you to hear about the, this gospel. I need you to hear about what God has done for you and what he has done for me. Why do you personally struggle with boldness? And so what gave them such boldness? First, they witnessed the power of God. Not just miracles, but the resurrection itself. I mean, look at the Pharisees. They saw the power of God at work and they dismissed it. They dismissed it. But more so than that, they experienced the power of God as believers. They understood that they have a new purpose. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. They know that they've been given this new life and that new life has a new standards and new opportunities on how they are to live. Verse 29. Here's, here's, a, here's a slogan many believers love to, to scream. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Absolutely. We must obey God rather than men. We are called to obedience as believers. I mean, John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Those who love God show by their obedience and you might be thinking, hold on, that's, that's a bit like, uh, you know, we're not a, uh, it's not a religion about all the rules. You're setting up all these rules and standards and saying, you know, this is, this is like, we don't do these things. Does that mean we're not loving God? Does that mean we're not believers? Does that mean I don't have salvation? Are you saying I have to have extra works in my life to, to, 
to be a believer? No. But I'm saying though, our obedience shows our love and devotion for God. It's, a, it's fruit. It's a reflection of it. You know, when we talk about the law, we talk about there's, uh, uh, in the Reformed tradition, it's historically been this, these three uses of the law. First, it talks about the, the law as a mirror, right? It's, it kind of, as you read it and you see it, you know you can't live by that. You know you failed it. You know, we look and we say in Exodus, it talks, you know, hey, you can't, no murder. Do not murder. Then Jesus goes, if you ever hated anybody, you've committed, you've, you've, you've committed murder in your heart. It says, do not commit adultery. But then Jesus says, well, have you ever lusted? That's, you've committed adultery in your heart. So as we look at the law, we see, I can't do this. I can't live by this. I need a savior. I need a representative. It shows our need for Jesus is what the law does. That this is what the law demands and I can't fulfill it. Secondly, the civil use of the law. That which kind of restrains evil. There's the sense that we all understand, do not murder, do not kill. Even non-believers can, can understand that. But third use is how we are called to live. That the, God, that the law of God is good. It's pleasing. And it, it pleases God when we live accordingly by faith. A faith that doesn't say, I believe that by my works I will be saved, right? But knowing that, that this is what is good for me. This is God's perfect will for our lives. What I like about this, this point here is that Peter goes, we must obey. Remember last time, Peter kind of asked it in a rhetorical way. He goes, he says, who should we be obeying, God or man? With being rhetorical, it's obvious it's supposed to be God. This time, he's a bit more forceful and direct. You didn't get it last time. Now let me just make, make it clear for you. We must obey God rather than man. I mean, he just states it clearly. And we see in scripture other instances of this. We see where the, where the people of God are faced with a decision. Do we obey God or do we obey man? Do we follow through with what God has called us to do? Or do we live in fear because we don't want the repercussions of what that's going to mean? I mean, think of, think of in Exodus, think of the midwives. The midwives versus Pharaoh, where the government is telling them, kill these children, eradicate them. And these bold, bold midwives obey God rather than man and preserve these children. Or Hezekiah, Versus the king of Assyria. Where he's like, I'm not going to follow after what you want me to do. I'm not going to proclaim what you want me to do. I must obey God rather than man. Despite whatever repercussions may come my way. Despite whatever punishment you might dole upon me. I must proclaim the word of God clearly. As he has called me to. So then what does obedience look like? What does obedience look like for the, for the believer today? Well, it looks like good works. James 2, 18 to 22. It says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Works do matter. But see, we're not under this covenant of works. We're not under this, this sense that if we have to work ourselves into salvation. I mean, the London Baptist Confession, the 1689, uh, chapter 16, paragraph 2, writes this. And I think it's a really good summary of the importance of good works. These good works, done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of one, a true and lively faith. So it's not one that saves you. It's not, it's, not what save, it's not saving faith, but it is one that shows a true and lively faith. It's the fruit of that. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness. So it's in response to what God has already done in their lives. It's a response to how God has saved them and redeemed them, how God has cared for them. It manifests their thankfulness. It strengthens their assurance in the hope of the gospel that they have. It edifies their brothers and sisters. So our good works also edifies our fellow believers in Christ. It adorns the profession of the gospel and stops the mouths of the adversaries and it glorifies God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. And when we talk about good works, it's not just ministry works. I used to have that kind of narrow view uh, when I became a believer. I became a believer, I think it was sophomore year in high school. And so I, I just started believing that, well, good works has to be religious works, right? Good works has to be something done in Jesus' name, in the church, some sort of religious tint to it, right? So I would just, I would be involved in whatever I could that was good works that I figured this will be good, Youth pastor says, let's go on mission trips. Oh, that's, that's good works. I got to go do this. Or let's go do the serving opportunity. That's good works. I'm going to go do that. And sometimes we, we do think like good works are that which is, is ministry or that is done within the church. But really, good works is what we do in our everyday life, in our ordinary life. I mean, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's not just for ministry professionals. That's for you. And that's for me. We, have been, we, are, create, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has provided beforehand. Which means the place that you're in right now is the place that God has for you to live out your good works. I mean, your profession how you interact with your colleagues is a good work. How you do your work is a good work. How you, you take care of your family, how you interact with your spouse or with your children, how you take care of your home is a good work. How you serve one another is a good work. How you interact with your neighbors, that's a good work that God has prepared for you. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a uh, it wouldn't be a pastor Jimmy sermon if I, I didn't bring up the office. So I got to bring up the office every time. It's just one of the things. That's my good works that the Lord has prepared for me here with you. But sometimes we look at these ordinary, bland, mundane tasks that God has for us, whether it's going to work or cl 
cleaning the kitchen or disciplining our children or whatever else it can be. We look at those things as if they're just worthless. They're not, no use of our time. And so at the end of the office, uh, uh, in the finale, uh, Pam Halpert is there and she's just, give, she's talking and she's like, I never understood. I thought it was weird that you wanted to do a documentary about a paper company. I thought it was weird that you wanted to do that. It just doesn't make sense to me because this is common. This is ordinary. This is nothing. This is nothing. This is mundane. But as, as it's going on, I could see there's a, a lot of beauty in ordinary things. And isn't that the point? Brothers and sisters, for all of us, God has prepared some good works for each and every single one of you. They're ordinary. They seem mundane. But they're beautiful, beautiful works that he has prepared for you to walk in. Because as you walk in them by faith, you glorify God by obeying God and following his commands. See, obedience is, is also Holy Spirit empowered in John 15. We read there that, that if you have us abide in Christ and he abides in you. Good works are, are intentional. They're intentional. It, sometimes they, they do take a bit of sacrifice and, and, and thought through in them. But they're also done joyfully and willingly, not begrudgingly. Because we know we're doing it out of thankfulness for what God has done in us and how it can bless our other brothers and sisters in Christ. The fear of God frees us from slavery to fear. As believers, we can walk in this freedom knowing that we have salvation and knowing that, that as we obey God, we're, we're obeying him in response, because we do love him. We do care for him. We do, he doesn't need us to do that. But it is in response to what he has done for us and in us. Let us live lives of freedom and truly call out, I must obey God rather than man. But let us do so in boldness, but a boldness that understands our place of humility. Because our community is watching they see us, they hear us, and who we represent as ambassadors of Christ, we want to give him the glory and show how glorious he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how beautiful it is, and I thank you that we have ordinary tasks that we could do each and every single day. But those Ordinary tasks are, are beautiful and wonderful and they glorify you and I pray that we would walk in them, Lord. I pray that we would walk boldly, humbly, and proclaim your goodness to a lost world. We pray this in your name. Amen.